0: We want to talk right now, big picture, uh, gold, the dollar, and the equities market, and here's where I want to start. Actually, before we begin, 30-second rapid introductions, if you could. Tell the audience who you are and what you do. Brent, i will start with you.
1: So my name is Brent Johnson. I've got a firm called Santiago Capital. It's based out of Puerto Rico, and I've been managing money for high-net-worth individuals for about 25 years. And I do it from a kind of a global macro standpoint. Danielle.
2: Danielle Park, Portfolio Manager and President of Venable Park Investment Council, based out of near uh, Toronto. And uh, we're absolute return risk managers, high net worth portfolios. We're in our 20th year.
3: Grant. Uh, Grant Williams. I've been in the finance game for nearly 40 years now, I'm ashamed to say. And I now have a website, grant-williams.com, where I write and podcast and conduct interviews.
0: That's it. Thanks, Grant. And Russell.
4: I'm Russell Gray, co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show, Odd Man Out. You can see they put me off to the edge. Uh, but m- my background's really real estate. I come out of the mortgage business in 2008. It was a train wreck. I learned a lot. And I learned that gold is something that I needed to pay attention to for a lot of reasons. And so uh, got very involved in it. Met Jay by being a panelist. Uh, and he invited me to come. And I'm excited to be here with everybody else.
0: I'm glad you're here. OK, so let's jump in now. One of the big conversations that we're hearing right now is there's a rotation occurring in the way capital is allocated away from speculative growth stocks and towards uh, value-generating assets. Now, you, know, you could hear this headline, if you're, if you're a value investor, you'd say, yes, absolutely, that's occurring right now because you want it to, right? But the, uh, the, the investors of the previous decade are saying, no, no, once the Fed pauses rates and then eventually drops, it'll be game on again in the equities market. So I want to get your perspective on that. We'll just start right beside me, Brent, and then work our way down the line. Does anybody have any thoughts they want to share?
1: Well, I, I don't necessarily buy into the, this is the time to buy value. I don't think it's a bad time to buy value, but I don't think it will necessarily outperform other equities. Uh, I, I kind of still believe that we've got this you know, currency and sovereign bond crisis ahead of us. And I think until we get through that, it's going to be either risk off or risk on and everything's going to kind of trade similarly. I mean, you've seen over the last three or four months as interest rate hike expectations have fallen and, in, and inflation expectations have fallen, the tech has started to outperform again um, because it kind of has a, a built-in interest rate play in technology and growth so i, I if, if we get into a place where they do QE again, I would expect uh, technology to outperform value. interesting okay any any counter opinions?
2: Um, well, I think everything I kind of agree with the risk on, risk off thing, we've had a bounce in risk on in the last three weeks. Um, I think that's in anticipation of the fact that there's this presumption the Fed is going to pause soon, Bank of Canada paused last week. Um, And it is true that, you know, you get to the pause, it's typical to see a big rebound in most assets because there's a lot of speculation still going on. You see positioning still pretty uh, bullish even though sentiment is expressed as negative. So I think, though, the, the caveat there is that typically when they pause, there's about a, almost a five month pause on average, you don't go to right back to cutting the next month because that would be ludicrous since there's a 12 to 24 month lag in the terms of how monetary policy transmits through the economy. So I think that the, the rally in the last little bit is premature, I think it may be a bear market rally and I think that we're going to have a pause and it could go on even longer than average this time if inflation is sticky for a bit. But typically, the bottom line, equities usually bottom about 18 months after a pause, after the central banks have not just paused, but actually been cutting for many months. So I think we're really early in this down cycle.
3: Interesting, all right, Grant. Yeah, I think think what Daniel said is uh, is really important. I think this this idea that we're gonna go straight back to cuts is something that everyone's looking for. They're looking for the pivot. Everyone's calling this thing a pivot. Mm. And the reality is, we're looking for a plateau, and the, and the central bankers will want to keep that plateau as high as they can for as long as they can to try and let monetary policy um, do the work it's supposed to do in cooling inflation. And if you pay attention to um, what the Fed governor's saying, and they're rotating this year, we've got four new guys coming in who were perceived as much more dovish than the four who are rotating off. And each one of them, if you look at the comments they've made in the last several weeks, are trying to reinforce their hawkish credentials. And they're literally talking about how we need to keep rates up here and let the policy do its work. And so I think there's going to be this, this um, knee-jerk reaction on the part of investors when they say, okay, we're going to pause now to think, okay, it's on again. The cuts are going to come, the Fed's going to pivot, and we're off to the races again. And I think that's, that's going to be a very dangerous mindset to investors to have. We're going to have this stasis for as long as they can do it before somebody blinks, either the markets blink and realize rates are going to be 4.5%, 5% 5 for a while, or the Fed blinks and starts cutting again. And that period is going to be the danger
0: point, I think, for investors. And can you elaborate a little bit on on where the vulnerable points are? Where's the danger grant for investors during that bridge? Well, the danger is is getting,
3: is trying to front run the Fed pivot too soon. The idea is is thinking to yourself, okay, they've paused, I'm going to load up because what happens next is they pivot and they start cutting again and we're off to the races again. And right I think now, yeah, on. exactly right. You look at what's happening now the the pivot's being discounted. We're seeing all these crazy tech stocks lead the way. We're seeing the GameStop phenomenon all happen again, the one-day to expiry option mania happening again. Just reinforcing the behavior that worked last time and following that path in the short term, I think could leave you with a whole bunch of positions scattered across your portfolio, that could cause you an awful lot of sleepless nights. And I think investors need to think very carefully about the mental pain they're gonna put themselves through by trying to swing trade a market that's gonna get incredibly difficult to do that in. Okay,
0: thanks for that. Russell, anything to add to that?
4: Um, well, I totally agree with Brent. I think the, the major issue is the bond and currency. I think, and and then the big question is, is this just a cycle? And is it, we kind of go back to just a variation on a theme, or is this an end of an era? Mm. You know, you've got Russia and China working to de-dollarize, they're powerful. And uh, you know, you've got how long in the tooth the dollar is in its position now, even mainstream people are coming out starting to talk about the idea that, well, maybe it's a multi-currency world, maybe the dollar won't remain dominant. I think anybody who is concerned about currencies of any kind, including the dollar, you know, obviously that's why you're here. (laughs) You know, you want to have something you can pivot into any currency. Um, So, and then on the value investing concept, I mean, as a real estate guy, and I think you have Robert Kiyosaki here, and his, his whole thing is cash flow, cash flow. So it's not buy low, sell high, and end up with you know faux equity on your balance sheet and think you're wealthy. It's how much cash flow do you have coming in. It's a lesson I learned the hard way kind of being a speculative real estate investor pre-2008 and, and, and learning the hard way how important cash flow is. Real equity is a derivative of cash flow. Um, So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. But I think that when you have a lot of money sloshing around in the system, it's easy for bubbles to form and you can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. So why Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. What does that mean? They they don't, there's no fundamentals underneath. So I think we need to pay attention to the bond market. I had a chance to sit on a panel with Daniel DiMartino Booth uh, at our summit uh, last year. And I asked her, is the Fed gonna keep raising rates until something breaks? And if so, what's gonna break? Without hesitation, she said, absolutely. And credit markets, mm. and so I think you 've got to pay attention to that, especially you know in the world I live in where you 're very dependent, asset values are very dependent upon healthy credit markets, so dollars,
0: bond market credit markets now, anything anybody would add to what 's been said, otherwise we 're going to jump into currencies I'd maybe would maybe add
3: one more thing um, I think um, a key shift that i 've noticed in the conversations i 've had in the last couple of months is. Um, this idea that that professional investors are very happy to be paid 4.5% right now to sit and wait. Mm. And that's a massive change. And I don't think people understand how big a change that is. And when you look at, um, if you look at your TV and you see how many commercials there are for MGM gaming and DraftKings and all this, you know, the, the, the gaming gambling culture in America, which I grew up with in the UK, it's been like that way since long before I was born, so it's something I'm used to. But it's really noticeable in the UK, this, this gambling culture. And the stock market has become an expression of that gambling culture. And so we're now at a point where professionals are sitting looking at the risk and saying, I can get paid 4.5% to take no risk and sit out and wait. And that changes things materially. And I think people really need to understand what a difference that makes. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Um, you know, and I, I don't mean to, like, just toot my own horn here, but that's, I'm taking that on this year, I think, and I mentioned that this morning, about the importance of owning physical gold. And that's what I hear, and I know this isn't for everybody, but when I hear you speak like that, what I think about is how important it is to maintain my call option on liquidity, because I'm a speculator. I am unnecessarily reckless, and I enjoy uh, investing like that. I like the earliest rounds of the earliest stage companies. I also have three super young kids, so I need that insurance policy, and if you have the insurance policy in place, then speculate all you want, right? But take care of business first. Okay, so let's pivot. I know the crowd wants to get your thoughts on the US dollar. There's a lot of talk about whether or not the petrodollar still has the utility that it used to. What's the longevity of the world reserve currency? Maybe to begin this conversation, um, what sustains a world reserve currency? And, um, Grant, maybe I'll start with you this time and then we'll work the other way. Wow, I thought you've got a Brent for this one. This is Brent's
3: this is <laughs> wheelhouse. Um, Look, u- ubiquity is is really what sustains it, um, and you know the, the key to the dollar reserve currency is that 1973 agreement with the Saudis to to only accept dollars for oil, and that's held for 60 plus years, um, and it's it's been the bedrock of that foundation. You know, every country that wants to have energy has to hold dollar reserves, and. Um, you know, we'll get to Brent's thoughts on this in a minute, which are, are, are probably better form than most, because he's, he's, been, he's been defending himself on this on this hill for years now. But, um, but there is a, a noticeable shift happening at the fringes of people looking to de-dollarize. And this comes back to, the the move that the U.S. Treasury made in sanctioning the Russian central bank. That that move has really forced central banks around the world to think to themselves, we need a plan B in case we get on the wrong side of the U.S. government um, and they want to freeze our assets. So it's happening at the margin. It's definitely happening. The question is, how quick does it happen and where's the tipping point for all the things that people associate with the end of dollar hegemony, But I, th- I think that's a, way, a ways away yet, but we're moving towards it inexorably. There's no, there's no doubt about that.
0: Danielle Russell, anything you would add to that?
2: Yeah. So, what makes the world currency um, predominant is the the currency in which trade is done, most of the trade in the world is done in the U.S. dollar. Everyone talks about the fact that the U.S. owes a lot of money and they do, but they very rarely mention that the bulk of the debt owed in the world is in U.S. dollars and that emerging and developing economies own a ton of U.S. denominated debt. So they very much need cash flow in U.S. dollars to service that debt. Um, And it is a question of uh, the cleanest dirty shirt. It is a question of, you know, where people go in times of strife, which we're starting to see. You know, the US dollar, of course, rallied in 2022 against most currencies as the world slowed down, as inflation came off the boil, as risks markets started to roll over. Um, And typically we're, you know, again, if we see that continue over the next 12 to 18 months, I think that the US dollar could rally in here again, on a, again, flight to safety more, uh, and you tend to see currencies like the Canadian dollar bottom with commodities and the equity market, et cetera. And then who knows? I mean, I think it's very difficult to do anything out of a 12-month prediction cycle here when you're talking about the amount of geopolitical stuff that's bubbling under the surface, whether it be Taiwan and the semiconductor fight and all the the, uh, chess that's going on in the world right now, but ultimately the U.S. dollar is the most liquid and the most owed currency and the bulk of all the global commodities, I think, but three trade in the US dollar. So right now that still has the dominant pl- position.
0: Russell, anything to add to that? Uh,
4: I, I agree. I, I think that what gives the, uh, any currency its, uh, its power is demand. Mm. And so when you have a big economy that is uh, earning dollars and taxed in dollars and you need to earn dollars to pay taxes, that's a form of demand. Obviously, to buy energy, that's a form of demand. Uh, Debt service throughout the world, a lot of dollar-denominated debt, to Danielle's point, is spot on, right? That's demand. And then the other part that's missing is the compared to what? Because, you know, if it's the dirtiest shirt in the laundry, that's a compared to what? It's not great, but it's, or it's the cleanest shirt and the dirty laundry, right? So that's compared to what? So you have to look at what is happening out there in the world of compared to what? The Chinese, I think, looked at what the how the dollar became the dominant currency, and they've issued a lot of yuan-denominated debt. they made a lot of deals with trading partners said, hey, we'll loan you money on your infrastructure, and you gotta pay us, but you're gonna to have to pay us in yuan, mm-hmm. which means you have to earn you want. Now they're making the deal with Saudi Arabia. They've been working uh, with with Russia to de-dollarize because Russia has shown the world if you get on the wrong end of US politically, uh, they're gonna cut you out of the system. And that, that becomes urgent. That's like having a heart attack. And, and so there's a lot of momentum out there and powerful people who are working to undermine it. You know, in the old thing in Mariel, uh, I mean, in, uh, Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway's book, you know, how did you go bankrupt? <laughs> Slowly then suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know? How did the dollar lose its status? Slowly then suddenly. Mm -hmm. I think an investor just needs to be prepared to think outside the dollar and be prepared for something unexpected to happen quickly. And if it doesn't happen, no harm, no foul. But if it does, then you're gonna really be in a good position. And so I think that being at conferences like this and paying attention to gold in particular, probably really smart, paying attention to the bond market, really smart, are they going to save the bond market at the expense of the currency? I, I, would, I would bet yes, but I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say. I think it, it, you know, we had the health crisis turned into an economic crisis, turned into potentially a financial crisis that can turn into a currency crisis. And are you really prepared? As Americans, we only think about dollars. And we don't think outside the dollar. Most other places do, mm-hmm. but Americans don't. Very few own yep. gold, very few own other currencies. They denominate everything in dollars. It's the only way they know how to think. I think that's a paradigm that needs to start to shift, especially for Americans, or they're gonna wake up one day and be very surprised that the dollar isn't what they thought it was.
1: Brent, do you follow the dollar at all? <laughs> I've, I've taken a look at it recently and I've found some interesting things. No. Um, I think what I would, I would build on what each of uh, each of the panelists have said and that to me, the the foremost important things for a currency are liquidity, demand, um, and then uh, it's, it's. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I forget. So that. the answer is no. You don't I follow. No, I forget the bank. comment you made. Yeah, tax, <laughs> oil, yeah, yeah so, uh, and debt. So you need, you need liquidity, you need uh, demand, and you need uh, a place to store the res- like a big market. Whether that kind of goes along with liquidity, but the thing you also need is you need to enforce its use. We don't live in a world where you freely competing currencies. We live in a world with legal tender laws. You know, you were required to use the Canadian dollar in Canada. You were required to use the US dollar in the United States. You're required to use the, the euro in Europe. Um, but the re, and you know, if you don't use it, you get thrown in jail. I mean, that's, that's, that's the real world. And I think that that happens on the global stage as well with the US military. And a lot of times when I say that, people don't like that because that's immoral and they shouldn't do that, but that is what they do. And I think there is zero chance that we will go from a world where the U.S. is the global reserve currency to not being the global reserve currency without it being extremely violent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think in that period of extreme violence, even if the U.S. dollar ultimately, or if the U.S. were to ultimately lose that, the period of that violence, I think, would see the dollar spike tremendously. Um, the other thing I would say is, it, to me it's been kind of interesting to see the transition of the role of the dollar losing its status, because originally it was the dollar's going to get inflated away to zero and it's going to be worthless, and the market will just make it lose. And then it was, well, maybe, you know, maybe the dollar will rise versus other currencies, but it's going to lose versus commodities and hard assets. And then it was, well... Maybe the dollar will remain the global reserve currency, but we'll have some multipolarity, and we'll also store reserves in gold and some other hard assets. Well, that's a commodity bull market. That that's not a change. If the dollar remains the global reserve currencies, but central banks own gold, and you and I own gold, and companies store uh, and they store strategic reserves and resources, and that pushes commodity prices higher, that's a commodity bull market. That's what was happening in 2001, 2003, 2005. Um, so. I just don't think that we are going to see the dollar lose its role as the global reserve currency anytime soon. I won't say that it can't happen. It can absolutely happen. Everybody should absolutely own gold uh, because I think it will do even better than dollars in the years ahead. Um, But but in a world where the dollar rises versus other currencies and gold rises versus other currencies, Hmm. and we have a little bit of multipolarity where China and Russia trade, I mean, that's... That's a bit of a transition, but it's not a wholesale change. And that is not the way a global reserve currency changes. That, or that could eventually happen, but that is not a change of global reserve currency. Now, just because you mentioned, you know, and I agree the US would likely
0: intervene in whatever way they needed to, to protect that dominance, is what you're seeing between China and Russia right now, the petro-yuan selling oil for gold, et cetera, is that enough of a challenge? Yet, Brent, for you to expect some sort of conflict to occur.
1: Well, sure, yeah. I mean, and the other thing I'll say is, I often get said, Brent, how can you not see this de-dollarization happening? The whole world wants to move away from the dollar. I see it. I get it. They are absolutely trying to do so. But you know, I've tried to be Tiger Woods for 20 years, and it hasn't worked out. You know, just wanting to do something and being able to do it are two completely different things. And so, um, you know, I think these these efforts that are being made. Um, will continue and I think if they ever really kind of started to you know catch on in a big way and the U.S. dollar were to start to suffer as a result of these things that's when you're going to see geopolitical conflicts pick up and I would argue that's probably partly what Ukraine is about you know this is I've said this before is I think we're kind of in the midst of this big game it's like this is the game of thrones this is you know we often talk about chess versus checkers you know china's playing chess we're playing checkers and we're so behind and we don't know what's going on and i think it's a bigger game than that i really think this is the this is the game for all the marbles and i, I would i would bet everything i have the us does not hand it over no doubt grants yes yeah, on no, to follow I, up there
3: I, I agree it won't be handed over i'm just curious bent on your thoughts you and know, i have spent a lot of time talking about this yeah. over the years but i i'm curious as to your thoughts that the, the incentives have changed in the last couple of years. And the incentives for the Russians have changed, obviously. The incentives for the Chinese have changed, obviously. And now we're seeing incentives change for the Saudis. Um, you know, Xi's recent visit to, to Saudi was a big deal. Um, we're seeing marginal players like Ghana. We're seeing incentives change. And I just wonder, um, at the margin, all these incremental changes where both sides are incentivized now to find a way to not be held hostage by the SWIFT system for kickoffs, at a time where the US has to fund bigger and bigger and bigger deficits, it feels to me like it brings that tipping point forward a little bit because the US need that demand for dollars to stay high and the other sides now need to try and reduce it. I wonder if, if you think that changes the dynamic.
1: I think it could bring it forward because I think right. it's, it's, it's pulling this event, whatever this event is, whatever this potential transition is, I think it pulls it forward. Because to your point, the other countries are at the point they need to try to do something. Um, the the big, I don't know, fly in the ointment, for lack of a better way is saying it, um, and Russell, you touched on it, is the, uh, the, or I'm sorry, Danielle, you touched on it, the, the amount of debt outside the United States that the rest of the world owes in dollars. So in order to you know affect this change and get away from using the dollar they kind of first have to pay off the US dollar debt which is just
2: or default or default
1: yeah, yeah okay <laughs> yeah. but but i'm glad you said that because that's the key point if they default on their US dollar debt that would demra- dramatically decrease the demand for the dollar that's true but when they do that they're not defaulting on the united states they're defaulting on each other mm. the euro dollar debt but so euro dollar debt is that's the dollar debt outside the united states that's a French bank making a loan to Turkey. It's a Japanese making a bank a loan to uh, Indonesia. It's a Brazilian you know, farmer extending dollar credit to, to whoever it is, uh, or a Brazilian government extending the uh, dollars to, to whoever it is. And so if they all decide they're not gonna pay, they're burning their own house down to do it. So I get it, it gets rid of the demand, but it also gets rid of all their assets. Because the the, the euro dollar debt on somebody's balance sheet as a negative is an asset on another European or another African or another Asian institution. So, and I think, I know maybe people disagree with this, but to me it could not have been demonstrated any more clearly over the last 12 months. The, The US basically has a kill switch on the global economy. All they have to do is raise rates and it puts everybody else in crisis. I mean, in September, we saw the Bank of England had to intervene in the gilt market. Japan had to intervene in both the JGB and the currency market. Europe had to buy periphery bonds to keep Italian yields and uh, Spanish yields from spiking. So all of these things that are people worry about one day happening to the dollar and causing its dominance to fall are right now happening today in all these other countries. And all the U.S. had to do was raise rates. And then I know people, will, sorry, and I'll wrap this up quickly. People say, well, the U.S. can't keep raising rates. Okay, fine, but people said that a year ago too. And they raised it 4% in nine months. And you know what, the market didn't fall apart. It was volatile, but it's, you know. And so I would say, if you say we can't raise another 5%, I would tend to agree with you, but I don't know for sure. And if you're trying to, if, you, if you're in a fight and you're trying to hurt the others, It's, you know, you're going to get hit too. So they'll say you can't raise rates because it'll hurt the United States. Well, yes, it'll hurt the United States, but I mean, again, it put the other people around the world in total crisis.
2: And I would just add to that, that that, you know, yes, the market, I don't know which one we're talking about didn't fall apart, many have fallen apart but don't forget the 12 to 24 month lag so my point would be that we've seen some of the dislocation that's happening but it's compounding it's accelerating and it's not fully priced in i think Mm. and the other little thing i just wanted to bring up about gold because i think we're talking about gold aren't we yes um so my my only concern there i'm i'm generally in favor of people owning bullion if that makes them feel better as an insurance policy. I'm less uh, in love with securitized versions because to me that's still fiat, that's still paper, isn't that what you're trying to get away from? So I never fully understood the whole you know, buying ETFs and things that were in that space. But in terms of the price, I remember being on, I think the last panel I was on with you Grant was in 2013 in Toronto, and you know, gold was roughly at the same price it is today, 10 years later, and the gold mining shares are 26% lower. I just checked that because I was curious. And so my concern about gold, when people say it's done well, I'm wondering how we're measuring that first, and secondly, um, if it is an insurance policy against instability in the world or inflation, surely to God, we have had all of that with spades in the last year, for sure, but in the last, you know, they've been doing QE and all the different interventions, and now we've got a shooting war in Europe and all these things, and gold has basically just come back to where it was 10 years ago. So if you look at when Volcker was killing inflation in 1982, gold fell for 20 years after that and now it's been rising again during all the hyperinflationary financialization gimmicks and tricks to try and keep central banks you know, pretending they have power when they were at zero rates. Now they're not at zero, now they're back near five. I don't think they're gonna wanna go back near zero because I think they profoundly feel out of ammunition and out of power, and let's face it, they wanna have some power. So I think, I'm just curious now, and I'm watching with great interest, what catalyst more could it be more, you know, uh, conflict, as we say, you know, the, the whole semiconductor thing, the news out of the Netherlands and uh, Japan have agreed to stop, you know, selling equipment for the large-scale uh, chip manufacturing. I see that all being very provocative, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of price and what insurance is considered. I think it's still the U.S. dollar is going to be the dominant insurance in that over things like gold, but I might be wrong. But I'm I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are.
3: Well, I think think what you said is correct, um, 100%, if we look at it uh, priced in dollars. But I think as soon as you go anywhere outside the US, you go to Japan, all-time highs, go to the UK, all-time high gold prices. Canada here has done extremely well. Turkey, I mean, look at the gold price in Turkey. Any country that's come under pressure um, for all the things that gold is supposed to protect them from, it's done what it's supposed to do. And I think the mindset of, of um, wanting to own gold because you think the price is going to go up in your chosen currency, to me, is just the wrong way to look at it. There are, there are, there's an infinite number of things you can put money into if you think the price is going to appreciate. I mean, GameStop, being a perfect example, right? AMC, all these, Dogecoin, all these things. If you just think, if you're looking for price appreciation, if you're holding gold as a liquidity reserve, if you're holding it Because at some point you're going to exchange it for something else that you think offers you a better long term path to to satisfy whatever needs you have, you think about it very differently. And um, a friend of mine, Michael Weeks, who works with Tony Dean at Edelweiss, wrote about this recently. and, And he said, You know, the reason we like gold is the risks we don't take by owning it right now. You know, you don't have a whole bunch of risks owning gold. You're not hostage to bad management, you're not hostage to, you know, crazy incentive schemes. You're not hostage to... There are, there are so many things that you don't have to worry about owning gold as a liquidity reserve and at any point in time you can exchange it for, hey, Dogecoin if you want to. If you think that's in, in a better thing to hold for you for the next two, three months, whatever, do it. But I think this this, this focus around the gold price um, is, is something that everybody has to think through very carefully because we're all hostage to the the, the the currency that all our expenses are, are denominated in and so we think of it in a very narrow way um, and I think that's something people need to need to think very carefully about
0: I, I would agree and I think that's part of the reason I think the gold story has been told very poorly because we hear these super audacious forecasts like fifty thousand dollars ten thousand dollars and all of this or you should own gold because the dollar is going to zero and these hyper dramatic events. Um, which sets people up for, fail- for failure, right? I mean, if that's your expectation, you're gonna be waiting a very, very long time, and you know, you'll, you'll, that, that narrative will probably outlive you, right? Um, so understanding why you own that asset is hypercritical uh, to Grant's point. Russell, anything that you wanna to add to that? Uh, I agree
4: with what Grant said. I think that learning to think outside the dollar or whatever currency you're used to working in is a hard thing to do. Mm. If you gauge up and down in dollar terms, it, it, it is deceiving. We interviewed Steve Forbes, and he says, what if clocks worked the way the dollar does? What if the value of an hour changed day to day? How would you plan? One day an hour is 60 minutes, the next day it's 75 minutes, the next day it's 45 minutes, it's chaotic. Um, so you have to have something. And, and if you look at gold as a trading vehicle, I want to I go from cash, dollars, currency, I want to go from dollars to gold to dollars in my round trip and I'm denominating my wealth in dollars, I'm constantly trying to accumulate dollars. But what if you denominate your wealth in gold? and And I don't care what the dollar price is. I'm gonna go from cash to gold and I'm just gonna accumulate gold. Why do I like gold? No counterparty risk. Privacy, portability, I can pivot into any currency, I can pivot back out of any currency. So I think it has a role in stabilizing a portfolio and if I would have realized how much better equity on my balance sheet is characterized in gold over real estate, I like real estate for cash flow and tax breaks, But I don't like it for storing equity. And so you just begin to think about it a little bit differently. And then the other thing is, you know, then I look at what people who know a lot more than me are doing. You know, who is the ultimate insider when it comes to currencies? The central banks, they print them. What are they doing? They're accumulating gold. Why? If it doesn't have a role, you know, why are they doing it? So it seems to me like that alone would be worth you know, beginning to accumulate some just in case. And then you, nobody really knows how much China has, but we do know that there's an overt, and it's been going on, I've been, I've been chronicling this since 2013, just the articles that come out, the bilateral trade agreements, the creation of all the the, the, the Yuan denominated bonds in the marketplace and uh, getting other nations into debt, leveraging their, uh, their trade in order to get people to use the Yuan. I don't know that they want to be the world's reserve currency, they just don't want to be beholden to the dollar. I don't think that's a secret anymore, that's not conspiracy theory. So it goes back to this idea, is this just another cycle, or is this really a fundamental change to the system? And I think what Americans, I'm a lay person. I'm not brilliant like these guys. I'm just a guy that reads the news and tries to understand. But to me, if all of a sudden this debt that's dollar denominated isn't paid off but refinanced, from Americans' perspective, it's paid off. But from the people who owe, they still have leverage. They just owe somebody else in a different currency. Could that happen? I don't know. But if, if Russia and China were to come out with something that was oil or manufacturing or gold-backed as an alternative, now the compared to what that I alluded to er- earlier mm-hmm. starts to matter. And, and maybe people start to think, oh hey, there's, there's a role for other stuff. And when I start dumping dollars, where, where are they gonna come? The only place they're any good then is in the country that issued them here. So you got all these dollars coming in to buy U.S. goods and services because they won't buy anything else anywhere else. Now, now Americans have a problem. It's a lot of money chasing too few goods and services, and we all know how that story ends. So gold, again, is something that insulates you from that. I'm not saying it's even a probability, but it's a possibility. Sure. And I think you just need to be prepared for that.
0: There's two threads that I want to pull on in what you just shared. And the first one, you touched on the central bank gold buying numbers. What I want to ask the panel is why. Why do you think that's occurring? Why do you think central banks around the world are accumulating at the rate they are, which is faster than they have in over half a century. Danielle. So
2: just on that point, I was um, doing some research and thinking about that issue. Um, I think if you look at the chart of the, again, okay, the price of gold and whatever currency you're looking at it, the point is that sometime around 2001, like I mentioned, it fell for about 20 years in value, sometime about the time that China came into the WTO, you start to see an upcycle. I think that's reflective of a couple of things. It was both a recycling of the dollars they were taking in in their exports, and they had to put it somewhere so that you start seeing the the, uh, Chinese central bank buying gold bullion, that was part of the uh, inflation a supporting factor there but also it was the increasing in inflationary impulses because the consumption picked up globally. It was the adding of all the debt and leverage and that sort of thing. So I think that there's that reason. Uh, the more trade that a, a, a con- country has had, the more stockpile of money, the more they want to diversify, the more they mm. look to add bullion uh, to, their, to their coffers. And that could... My concern is that if we're at the peak of an inflationary impulse here, Um, might, and and a cash crunch again, right? Um, And I know a lot of people think we're in runaway inflation, but what if we're not? What if we're in a demographic Mm -hmm. debt weight down cycle again because of a global recession for a bit? And then we may not see more accumulation, we may see liquidation, because that's, again, back to what do you need liquidity in?
0: Interesting, okay, now, uh, any other thoughts on that? I'll
3: just say one thing, if I can, just about what Russell just said, which I think is a hugely important point. You, You talked about, probabilities and possibilities. And I think this is one of the biggest shifts that we've seen over this last couple of years as inflation's raised its ugly head. We've lived for decades now in a world of probabilities. We've been assessing the probability of certain outcomes because there's been this kind of safe, understood uh, equilibrium around it. We've had periods of turmoil in various places, various asset classes, whatever it may be, but we've spent our lives assessing probabilities and outcomes. And I think what's happened in the last couple of years is we've now shifted to a point where we have to entertain possibilities. And that's a massive change in mindset because you have to start thinking, um, you know, to, to Brett's point about the dollar, you have to start thinking, okay, there, there was really no possibility of the dollar losing its hegemony five years ago. There were, if you were paying really close attention, there were little things being put in place um, among the BRICS countries to, to set up payment rails that could one day challenge a dollar, but it didn't really mean anything. It didn't get enough attention to really make a difference. Now we have to entertain possibilities of what might happen. And when you start entertaining possibilities and trying to handicap those instead of probabilities, it, it changes the entire macro picture of what's now possible rather than probable. And I think everybody needs to kind of open their minds to possibilities now and not dismiss. Like the, You were able to say, ah, yeah, but that'll never happen. With some degree of confidence for a long time now. And I think now we all have to be able to say to ourselves, man, that's unlikely, but it's not impossible. And, ha- and if, it's, if it's possible now, how do I have to think about the way that changes the way I allocate my portfolio?
0: Right. So the, the funnel of foreseeable possibilities has grown dramatically and should be considered. Did I understand that correctly?
3: Yeah, and, and, and the possibilities now are important. No matter how small they are, mm. what, was the, what was the probability of Putin going over the border into Ukraine, right, right before it happened, most people said zero, he won't do it. Yeah. But there was a possibility, and it happened. And so these possibilities now become important to weigh up, even if the probability of them happening is very, very small. Anything
0: to add? Otherwise, I have
3: a thread I want uh, to pull on from. I think the from... people
4: that were driving the Titanic were dealing with probabilities, okay. and yeah. not possibilities. Yeah. And I think we just need to be aware. Possibilities can sink the ship.
1: Brent? Uh, just with regard to gold, I would say, that the, I think the reason the central banks are buying it are three reasons. One is c- kind of what Grant talked about is they don't want to have all their eggs in the dollar basket. It makes sense to have some diversification. Number two, I think they know that this game that they've been playing—you know—they've been spinning plates for decades—and I think they know that those plates could come crashing down. And they want to own insurance just like I want to own insurance, and many people here own insurance. But the third reason I think they own it is that if you hold on to something, you have control of it. Right? It's the same reason they hold on to Julian Assange. They don't want him out there running around causing problems. And so, you know, I think, there, I think there's, a, there's an element of there. I, I do not think that China and Russia want a gold standard. I don't think any government wants to go back to a gold standard. Um, you know, if you, if you think about China, just about everything that, that, that goes on there from a governmental level involves control. The idea that they are going to give up control of their currency, the most powerful tool that they have, is in my opinion, just wrong.
0: The other comment you made that I was curious about, Russell, was refinancing sovereign debt. And that's maybe another option. I don't know how realistic that is. I'm keen to get the panel's thoughts. And how would that occur, I guess, is what you'd have to ask. And I guess nobody knows how much gold China owns. As an example, they're the world's largest producer and the world's largest importer, but I don't think they disclose their numbers with the utmost transparency. So it's tough to know what's back there and whether or not there's even foreseeably enough to make an impact, but what's the likelihood, or I guess the possibility, of um, of sovereign debt refinance away from US dollar? Is that something you could imagine? Danielle?
2: I, I don't think it's great because the size of it is huge and you need an investor. You need someone to buy it. And who's going to buy it in what volume and how much exposure do they want to that alternate currency? What is it, the ruble? What is it, the euro? You know, the Swiss franc? I mean, there, there, there's there's only so much currency and, and uh, availability of liquidity in those markets. So I don't know. I don't think it's great. I don't think there's an obvious buyer of that kind of volume. Hmm.
1: Anybody else? I, t- I tend to agree with Danielle. I just uh, it's really tough to see what it gets re-denominated in. Yep. I mean, I think the popular answer is gold. And that, again, if they could revalue gold higher because they already hold it on their balance sheet, and you know, it would probably the most be the most acceptable thing to the most people. But it doesn't mean it would be easy. Interesting. Okay. Look,
0: I want to thank you all for joining me on stage this morning. I appreciate your time. Let's give them a round of applause, everybody. Thanks, Dave. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.